welcome back to Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. When we started this journey with you, our listeners, a little over a year ago, we set out to offer an inside look at the various investment strategies and sectors that make up the private markets, and to clarify some of the misconceptions about the asset class. We wanted to bring you the human side, talking candidly to individuals who work in this business every day, including the firsthand and oftentimes amusing insight powered by data. Along the way, we added my co-host here, Fabio Montaigne, and our topics covered everything from credit and secondaries to on-the-ground accounts in Europe, Asia, and the global real estate opportunity. We sprinkled in some hot topics too, investing with emerging managers, the rise of the retail investor, how we're leveraging technology to digitize our industry in new and amazing ways. As we round out 2023 and gear up our inboxes with all of the 2024 market predictions, we thought it made sense to end the year looking back and reflecting on the topics we covered throughout the year and giving you a peek into what the data is telling us as we look ahead into the new year. Yes, thanks, Katie. It's, it's been a great year and we've covered a lot of grounds and I'm excited to cover this last topic of the year together. Joining us is our first repeat guest on the show and a 15-year veteran of the firm with important roles across our executive and investment teams. Please let us welcome back our Vice Chairman, Head of Investment Strategy and Direct Equity, Drew Schott. Drew, welcome back to the show. Are you thrilled to be the first guest to appear twice on the podcast? Well, well, first, thanks for for having me back. And I guess I have uh, two reactions to that. The first was kind of what took so long. But then as I thought about it and we're getting closer to the holiday season, I I sort of thought that I'm probably you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Most people declined and I'm the last resort. But either way, I'm, I'm happy to be sitting in the seat. Thank you. Before we dive into some of our big topics, I thought we could start with um, getting your thousand foot view of the Hamilton Lane footprint and platform today. And what are some of the exciting areas of growth you see ahead for both the firm and the private markets? Yeah, I think at the the the, the high level picture of Hamilton Lane, um, we continue to be focused on exclusively the private markets and our footprint continues to grow. We're up to 23 offices globally, about 650 employees. And that footprint of capital is about $850 billion as of today, um, including assets under management and supervision. And so we are doing all things private markets. We're helping our clients and investors navigate an increasing landscape of choices and structures and channels. Um, those paths continue to grow, um, and there's various strategies and sub-strategies. And so I think more than ever in, in my career, the private markets has become more accepted, more understood. And I'd like to think that our platform over the last you know, 32 years or so has helped investors um, get comfortable with that. So, Drew, give us your best sort of gladiator, thumbs up or down here, when we started the year, sentiment was a little rough. What do you think is the sentiment of the private markets today? Are we in a better spot than we were? I was, yeah. I, I think I'd say start about what it uh, what a difference a year makes because um, I think it was almost a year ago when I was on the podcast the first time, and I think that was a, a world where there was still not that it were totally out of the woods, but dare I say, there's less uncertainty today than there was 12 months ago. And so I think a lot of that comes back to, candidly, monetary policy and interest rates and and people's views of that related to inflation. 
And now the world, while it's not totally a clear path ahead, people are feeling generally better about whatever this new normal is around interest rates. It doesn't mean there won't continue to be choppiness. But a long-winded way to say, I think investors are feeling more positive about the macroeconomic environment. Now, certainly from a geopolitical and other sort of events around the world, there seems to be more and more and more challenges that we're we're dealing with. Um, And so it's hard to decouple those two pieces of it. But I think purely from an investment perspective, the sentiment I'm hearing from most investors and in client meetings is that um, people are looking to find ways to turn risk on a bit more maybe than they were 12 months ago. Yeah, I agree with that perspective. I think from the client side of the house, I'm I'm actually, I think we're in a really good spot. You had sort of that group of clients who, you know, they took the last year to kind of get their portfolios in order, understand what they owned, um, sort of understand what their key relationships are and where they're going to kind of lean in in this cautious market. And then you had others who really stepped up and said, this is something I want to take advantage of and I want to create either new pools of capital or reallocate dollars. So they didn't panic like we saw a decade ago. And in fact, sort of appreciated the volatility and understand that with that comes really strong performance potentially. Fabio, I don't know, what's your perspective on the Europe side? On, on, on the European side, I'd say, look, we're seeing a very similar trend to what we're seeing in the US. Um, inflation peaked in 2022. Uh, it's now come down strong, strongly off the back of interest rate hikes. If you look at Eurobor, it's, it's around the 4% mark today. Uh, Sonia, yeah, the base rate in the UK is is just over five percent in line with SOFA, and that seems to be working. Um, now it's too soon to tell uh, whether that can, you know, whether we can stop stop with the rate hikes. I think uh, people are being quite conservative there and 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 maintaining the policy. Um, but the expectations are that inflation will reach around the two percent mark. I think Q1 2025 is 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 the expectation. So that's definitely positive from that side. I'd say maybe a. a difference between the US and Europe. The Eurozone is 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 broadly flat in 2023 in terms of growth. Um, that's a little bit bifurcated. I'd say Germany, uh, to uh, I think a bit of a surprise, is is is, is suffering a little bit more. That they're, they're experiencing a slight recession uh, in 2023. Um, they've obviously got a very energy intensive industrial uh, industry over there. Um, and there's obviously ramifications following uh, the Russia-Ukraine invasion. So definitely seeing a little bit more um, muted growth than in the U.S., which is, you know, as everyone knows, growing closer to two percent. So a little bit, a little bit more positive there. But overall, I think you know things are working well. Inflation is coming down, and and we remain optimistic for Europe. One of the areas, though, that has been challenging is fundraising, right? I'd be remiss not to mention that. So, Drew, from your perspective, how has fundraising shaped up in 2023? What are you seeing um, in terms of impacts to deal flow and um, just general dollars going out the door? Yeah, no, no question. It's been some tough sledding. Uh, fundraising environment, I think, over the last three or so years, the, the pivot and the higher rate environment um, has changed sort of the deal-making landscape. It's changed the deployment spectrum. It's certainly in the last 12 months changed the distribution, capital coming back and exits. And for general partners, it, it hasn't gotten any easier. I think on the private asset side, the one counterbalance to that has been 
relative to investors putting capital to work in more listed liquid asset classes or the private side, um, you've seen investors continuing to lean into private market asset classes. So it hasn't been all bad, but just like everything else, there are haves and have nots. It's not good enough just to have strong performance. You needed to really be a good steward of liquidity, managing um, the, the capital deployment and, and things of that nature, which is another area I think our industry's evolved. It continues to get better. Um, managers being sort of mindful of the client experience. And I think that's probably an, an overall positive for the landscape. Yeah, I agree. And if I just sort of for the GPs listening, I think one trend we're seeing is that it's really common for groups to sort of get to their prior fund size. And then it sort of slows down from there. I think just understanding that GPs grew a lot over the last cycle and that the LP appetite is, you know, definitely still there, but there's a lot more choice today. There's a lot more flavors. So I don't know that the industry today has the capacity on the LP side to fund all of that. Um, and it will continue to be a, a challenge. At the start of 23, there was obviously a lot of chat around the accuracy of valuations in the private market space, private equity space, um, following the, the large public market sell-off in, in 2022. However, uh, year to date, the S&P and NASDAQ have rebounded very strongly, uh, and they're both nearing all-time highs, particularly on the S&P. Um, this positive sentiment seems to be gaining steam, and those markets are up almost 5% in November alone. Curious to hear your views, Drew, on how you see private equity valuations trending in light of this. Yeah, we've said it for a long time, and you know there was always a bit of skepticism when it comes to valuations on in the private market asset class, particularly in the, and we're talking about really just the buyout side and, hey, there's less volatility, but isn't that just because you're only marking assets four times a year? And I think the answer is the, the public and private markets are certainly correlated on the equity side. A part of the reason you haven't seen the volatility and the, the downs aren't as steep and the, the rebounds aren't quite as uh, accelerated as you've seen in the liquid side either is because generally speaking, Private market assets, there's a lot more of them. They're not always easy to access or find. But when you can find them, you can typically structure things in a unique way. You can find things at a discount relative to where multiples are on the public side. And so for those reasons, generally, if you look at the last 20 years in the buyout side, for example, on average, the discount at entry is somewhere in the 18 to 20% range if you look at all the buyout transactions. So they've started with a bit of a cushion. So when public markets decline, you're not seeing as steep of a downdraft in those valuations. But the other fundamental piece here is just the earnings and revenue and the growth profile. And that's true not just for the private asset class, but the public side as well. I think we've all been waiting for the other shoe to drop, for growth to finally slow and come down, and it still may. And I think Fabio touched on some of the things happening in Europe where um, the growth has been slowing pretty dramatically in certain areas. But by and large, growth has held up looking backwards on an LTM basis. And so the fundamentals of earnings have continued to bolster you know, those valuations as well. And then if you look at some of the macro forecasts, particularly here in North America, I think GDP, for example, has exceeded expectations um, in, in the U.S. It doesn't mean there's not going to be pain to come, but I think overall what you're seeing in terms of rebound in the public side, as well as just the resiliency of private market 
asset multiples and valuations is some of that optimism geared around the continued growth trajectory for corporate investors. Now, interesting. And I'm curious to hear your views as well around, do you, do you expect this rebound in public markets to impact in a positive way, new LBO activity, IPO activity, both have remained relatively muted, still happening, but you know, definitely below the highs that we saw in recent years. How do you view that side of things? Yeah, listen, I think part of the reason you've seen a decline in, in activity is everyone trying to find this quote unquote new normal with the interest rates and your cost of capital being different. And that for the sellers of assets created a bit of a disconnect because in many cases, the buyers were factoring in that new normal and higher for longer and wanting to pay a price that was a turn or two below where things were pricing out in 2021 and 2022. And the buyers were saying, well, wait a minute, my my cost of debt, my cost of capital is up meaningfully. Um, and so I, I can't afford to pay that price any longer, even if the growth, as we talked about, still looks to be pretty resilient. Um, but I think now with public markets rebounding a bit, you may start to see some of that buyer-seller disconnect abate. Um, and transactions start to occur again. I think it also, just as we touched on in the beginning, it certainly helps that, and you hit it, Fabio, like the, fo the go forward sort of interest rate curve is, while debatable, I think people are more confident that you're seeing a bit of a more plateauing of short rates, therefore giving investors comfort in creating capital structures, figuring out the wherewithal and flexibility they're going to need over the next three to five years in a, a world that's going to continue to have volatility um, for various reasons. Obviously, we've got a large direct equity platform. Are there any trends that you can infer from that side of things? Are, are we seeing more buyout activity uh, than we were maybe early in the year? Yeah, Q3 was a record number in terms of transactions in the pipeline. Now, the question is always how many of those actually crystallize and close. There's no question we've seen an uptick in the backlog of things that we're looking at. A lot of more compelling opportunities in, candidly, the middle market part of the spectrum. There, you're less dependent on leverage levels. Generally, you're seeing transactions that are have lower amounts of leverage or typically higher and bigger equity checks. And so that's where I think we've seen some greater activity levels for those middle market assets that aren't quite as picked over. They're not as intermediated, for example, as the large and mega end of the spectrum. And so that's been a compelling place to not only find deals happening, but we think from a value creation, there's just more levers to pull in that segment of the market. And that's optionality has been a good thing as investors think about an outlook that may have continued choppiness to it. Performance. You've written about it every way possible this year. And I know it continues to be a question you get. We're seeing a wider spread in performance, at least in the short term, among funds and deals. We've now seen a year sort of impact of higher rates, holding periods of elongated. What is your view on sort of the long term expectations about performance in private equity? Yeah, I'll take one from the past and then I'll kind of throw something else on top of it, which is I would wager 
because if you look at the last 25 years and you compared in any vintage year or over a three-year or five-year or time-weighted returns, the average private equity, private market performance has been better than that same dollar, euro invested in the listed asset class. So I would wager, and I think that the statistic is something like out of the last 22 years, buyouts are 22 out of 22. The world is going to change and it is changing and there's lots of choppiness, but I'd wager that trend continues. All of that said, it's not all roses. You have to be thematic about your approach. Um, we've said, and I think in some of our pieces I've written about it being a more deal pickers market, there's going to be probably a greater dispersion of returns if you look across deals, asset classes, managers, even by bifurcating different um, sizes of target companies. I think you're going to continue to see the strategy choices you make having a really great impact on where you end up in three to five years, more so than 10 years ago, five years ago, when it was low interest rates and lots of liquidity. And ironically, I think this is one of those places and for the private markets back to people are a bit more comfortable with the private markets. People understand it a bit better. You hit on it earlier, Katie, about investors and how they pivoted over the last 12 or 18 months. I think it's being thoughtful about not just the bottom up asset or the, the story you want to tell about the cool deal at the cocktail party. But what's really changed is thoughtfulness around portfolio construction and more of a top-down view, applying it not just to, for example, what am I going to do in the buyout space, but hey, should I mix in infrastructure, private credit, other strategies, secondary transactions, for example, that have different risk return characteristics for sure, but also in terms of liquidity and duration. And for so long in our asset class, there was only a couple of choices. And so now I think with the evolution of many of those areas I just discussed, it's given investors the ability to think about private portfolios in a similar context to what they've been doing in their public listed portfolios. Portfolio construction matters, top-down strategy matters. And so I'd say that is probably one of those trends that has really emerged with a reversal, of course, of the macro and interest rates over the last two years. I agree with you. Some LPs, they're just going to need to recalibrate their absolute return expectations. I think the bar set in 2020 was tough. I mean, the spread of returns there was, what, over a thousand basis points. The bottom quartile IRRs were in the high 20s. I think that that probably was never sustainable. So I, I agree with you. I think the asset class will continue to deliver even across all those sub-strategies. And uh, again, we always look for that few hundred basis points over listed assets. And I think that when compounded over long periods, is still going to really deliver on attractive returns. Maybe shifting gears a little bit here, uh, moving to credit on, on an earlier episode, we discussed how it's currently the golden age of private credit. Um, obviously, we've had a massive yield pickup, um, lots and lots of deal flow. Private credit has also benefited from um, leverage loan markets, which have been relatively muted um, since early 2022. Curious to hear how you view the impact of these rising rates on defaults. It's something that everyone talks about. Um, and, you know, just curious, do you view that to rise dramatically? Are we seeing anything yet in the data? It is the right question, but I think candidly, the idea that we're going to see a massive uptick in defaults is is probably overblown. 
Um, are you going to see an uptick in default rates? Absolutely. That happens. It's sort of fundamental when interest rates rise. You're already starting to see a very modest uptick in, in certain parts of the credit markets. But the reason I think it's not going to be sort of as draconian as the, the most negative purveyors might predict is the starting points, as we had talked about in terms of fundamentals, growth, cash flow margins, and things like interest coverage rates have ratios have never been higher. Um, so you have a lot of embedded cushion as a starting point. Not to mention, if you look at the previous cycles, you had tighter documentation in public credit markets over the last 15 years in that part of the credit landscape, in particular liquid credit, there is no covenants in a lot of cases. And so it's hard to default unless you're missing an interest payment or something. And so I think there's been a lot of flexibility that's going to be inherent because of that loosening of terms. I think you've seen leverage levels, even when prices were going up and to the right, remain consistently below you know, what we saw in the lead up to the GFC where, you know, loan to values, for example, going to 70% here, even in the run up, you're still seeing leverage levels remain in the 50-ish percent level. So again, more embedded wherewithal to weather a higher cost of capital interest rate at the corporate level. And so while we'd expect an uptick, I don't think it's going to be massive and certainly not to the levels we saw in the GFC era. Thanks. And I, I think I definitely agree that I think the latest stats that we're seeing is, you know, European and US leverage loan markets, we, we've got defaults in the very, very low single digits. And it's actually going down, I think, in the last couple of months, which is quite surprising to me. I'm curious to hear your views on the broadly syndicated loan and bond markets um, today. Do, 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 you, do you feel that they are coming back strongly? And do you expect that to really come back strongly next year? Well, I guess when your starting point is is sort of like zero, there's only one way to go. And so, you know, all kidding aside, the the the, the public credit markets, especially the syndicated loan markets, have been anemic. Um, and finally, and this is back to that point of while the world isn't totally clear, it's less uncertain, if that's the right way to phrase it, than a year ago. And look no further. I think that's a good first order indicator. Um, the syndicated loan markets in Q3, I think had their best quarter in quite some time. Over the last two years, I don't think there's been a larger quarter in terms of volumes. And so that gives you some indication that investors are feeling slightly more confident and where it has been sort of risk off or waiting or pausing because of uncertainty and where's inflation and interest rates gonna land. Today, it doesn't feel like that. And the syndicated loan markets are starting to show you they are trying to come back to life. And that also ties in, I think, a little bit to the pipeline of, of activity on the M&A and equity side that we're really starting to build um, at pretty significant levels compared to where we were even just 12 months ago. Drew, I want to talk about secondaries. It was definitely one of our most popular episodes this year. I know uh, Taylor Swift was named the Times Person of the Year yesterday, and I think secondaries could be that in private equity world. Um, what are you seeing in terms of attractive opportunities, pricing discounts? How do you think sort of our volume has been relative to prior years? Do you agree with me? This has sort of been the darling of the ball the last year. I know our podcast is widely followed, but there's there's the Kelsey brother one where they probably talk about the Swifty dynamics quite quite a bit um, here in the U.S. But 
Um, listen, I, I think I'll, I'll tie the secondary market to Taylor Swift in another way, which is, you know, everyone's heard the stories about her concert tickets and the huge spike in prices and the supply demand disconnect. I, I think that's number one in terms of supply demand disconnect. But over the past 12 months or so, the secondary market was probably a close number two to that, meaning back to fundraising has gotten harder. So GPs are looking for ways to create liquidity synthetically or otherwise. Limited partners being stressed. The denominator effect, which as Fabio pointed out, maybe is abating a bit, but a lot of limited partners, unlike the last you know, five to six years prior, where they wanted to hold and keep reinvesting and adding exposures, you had more LP-led secondary volume than you'd seen in quite some time. And the numbers of buyers or groups who are focused and can transact in the secondary world, given it is one that is emblematic of information asymmetry, meaning not everyone has the same information or access to funds, to managers, to deals, that has created a unique place where it's a very concentrated buyer base in the secondary landscape, as you discussed, Katie, on, on, on the podcast this year. And so it's meant that there's been discounts for those that have capital and are buyers. And for the limited partner side, I think while they've been tailored in what they are selling, they've been more willing to transact in those secondary areas, either to alleviate the denominator effect or to make room for funds or managers coming back to market. And so it's been a pretty compelling place to to be. And oh, by the way, the returns have been great as well, not to mention on a risk-adjusted basis, if you think of those strategies being shorter duration than your typical primary 10-year, we enter at day one. In those areas, you're obviously entering in you know, midlife of a fund. And so there's shorter shorter duration by definition, but you're also closer to the harvesting liquidity end of the spectrum when you come into those fund positions when year five, six, or seven. And so I think for all of those reasons, secondaries, while not quite in the Swifty caliber, have been the darling of the industry. And I think it's for good reason. And I think for us, you kind of hit on it, the importance of understanding cycles, meaning that sometimes the LP interests are more in favors and sometimes the GP-led transactions. But the GP-leds have just exploded. So would love to get your perspective there. I've heard of groups raising GP-led only funds and just the types of deals we're seeing are kind of all over the board on the spectrum from awesome deals at par to things that are a little bit more um, dicey or opportunistic. Just wanted to get your view on the hotness of that market right now. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Katie. And I think it's it's absolutely true. It's it's roughly 50% of the market volumes today. And that's something that, you know, six years ago, it really didn't exist. And the volumes this year, um, if you just add them up, are, are bigger than the entirety of the, the secondary market in, in 2017 or 18 across all areas. Um, so, absolutely a, a, an emerging, evolving place. And I guess the question we get a lot is, are they good or bad? And the answer, like my professors used to always say, anytime you ask my hard question, it depends. It really depends. No. So I think it's, it's it comes down to, for the GPs, we talked about it a little bit. It's been a good option to, A, create liquidity, even if it is quote unquote synthetic in some ways, but you're giving uh, you know the LPs the option to 
have some level of liquidity. Oftentimes you're giving them the, the chance to roll into whatever the new deal is in that continuation fund. Um, and for the LP and investor, that optionality is good. And the thesis goes like, you know, from the GP, hey, I've managed this asset for five or six years. And while I could get out of it in a choppier macro environment, wouldn't you rather have me owning and continuing to build one of those market leading assets in the portfolio that no one in the planet knows better than I do? And so I think they're not all created equal. Um, It comes down to us to one major factor, which is around alignment and how are the GP treating things like economics rollover? What are they doing with the earned and accrued carry, for example, in that asset pool relative to the new continuation fund? Um, And so I don't think it's um, they're all bad, nor do I think all are created equal. We get a little bit hesitant, especially when it comes to the single asset continuation vehicles, which essentially are co-investments with fees. No one wants to say that, but that's the reality of what those transactions look like. And I, it's one of those places where um, there's going to be a bifurcation, I think. You're going to see a lot of those transactions where the alignment is there go well, and there's a diverse pool of assets, and they're going to generate the returns and liquidity that y- you count on or, or were more interesting at the entry point. And then I think there's going to be some really big deals because a lot of those single asset deals were sort of structured around crown jewel, you know, market leading assets that if one or two of them go bust, I think there's going to be some lessons learned and and some sort of, um, you know, hindsight reflection of what was I thinking? Maybe one last question for me. One of our hot topics or top of mind of LPs today is the democratization of private equity. We spend a lot of time here. We write a lot about it. What is your view on sort of the high net worth versus the institutional channel and the growth there? Is this something that you think will be even more of a topic for 2024? Yeah. And and Fabio sort of started with that. And I'm not sure I ever quite yet. Like, what are we excited about going forward? And to me, it's not just us. I, I think everybody sees the opportunity in that part of the market, high net worth, individual investors that, you know, for decades because of the clunkiness of the private market asset class and long term and illiquid and locked up um, and minimums and things like that, we've finally woken up as an industry and said, we, we can do better. We can create a structure that's more palatable. We can be thoughtful given that proliferation of, of investment strategies and choices and duration and liquidity that we didn't have 10 or 15 years ago. We can create a structure that makes sense and works. And so if you look at you know the typical high net worth investor, on average, they have less than you know 3% exposure to private markets. And that is a massive, massive part of the landscape. I mean, the estimates vary, but you're talking about 80 to $100 trillion globally with a very low penetration rate. And so um, that's a huge opportunity. And even if you think about modestly gaining exposure across that type of investor, you're talking about one or 2% increase in the penetration rate is suddenly going to add 20% to the entire size of the private market ecosystem. Um, So it's not surprising that continues to be a focus. I also think the structures have come a long way from where they were in terms of accommodating and being a solution to those channels. 
And I think it's it's a good thing because you know, why should only the institutional larger investors benefit from what is now not even debatable, the long-term outperformance that private markets have generated historically relative to liquid asset classes. And it, it I don't want to keep rambling here, but it, it brings you to another place of risk profiles and how risk can be misunderstood. Um, the public markets, look at the returns that Fabio was highlighting in the year to date. I mean, most of those returns have come from seven companies in the S&P uh, in the US. And, and to me, that's a different risk profile where your returns dependent on seven companies um, versus a private company landscape that is eight to 10 times the size, depending on how you slice it, of the publicly listed investable universe. So I think investors who in that channel are now accessing that are just being smart about proper portfolio diversification. Because if I said you can invest in two things or you can invest in 10 things, you'd probably feel a bit more comfortable building a portfolio that had 10 options and not two. And that's, I think, a bit of what that part of the uh, investor landscape is understanding maybe better than they had before. Thank you, Drew. And curious to hear what your biggest, boldest prediction is for the year ahead. No, and I'd love to hear what Katie and, and Fabio, you you both are thinking as well on that, because that's always a, a fun one to answer. I think one thing that will surprise to the upside is deal activity and in particular distributions. I think while not at the level of distribution activity we saw in 2021, I think you're going to see um, a year where distribution levels are in the top three of all-time distributions for limited partners in the private markets. What about you two? What do you think? I think from my side, I mean, given that I'm focused on credit, defaults are top of mind for everyone. My prediction would be that the default scenario isn't as bad as everyone's predicting. I think the big thing that we have today that we didn't have back 15 years ago during the global financial crisis is this massive private credit market. And I think that that space will be there to support um, any any defaults that come the way. So I think that's definitely one prediction. And another prediction, which is maybe a little bit optimistic too, is I think there's going to be a return of the IPO market. I think large buyouts are going to be able to capitalize on, on exiting. Um, and I think that's going to really spur the market. Maybe a little bit positive, but um, that's, that's where I'm thinking right now. I think mine would be that fundraising desperation gets worse. The number of conferences that are 75 to 80% GP are heavier, <laughs> double. <laughs> Um, but I do think from a return perspective, 2024 is going to be a really good vintage year because we'll see a little bit more of the uh, seller buyer expectations come in. So I think uh, for the LPs, the clients, this is a great time to be risk on and to be putting more capital to work in the private markets. Obviously, a lot to be excited about. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us on the final episode for 2023 for the Private Markets Made Human podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I, I assume I get some sort of jacket for being the first uh, two-time participant, but it's always a lot of fun with you both. So thank you in all seriousness. Thank you, Drew. Always a pleasure to have you on the mic. Stay tuned in 2024 as we have a strong lineup of new topics and speakers, and maybe even some surprise guests who will likewise share their candor and insight. As always, it's our pleasure to bring you into our world with our people and to the side of the private markets made human. Thank you.